We are in a series for Advent in which we are looking at how the Christ is patterned or anticipated in subtle ways throughout the Old Testament. In past weeks, we've looked at Adam and Eve, who anticipated both Christ and his bride, the church. And last week, we took a big picture view of the life of Joseph, even as we focused on two crucial themes within his life, the theme of the robe and bread and wine. Well, this week, we're considering Moses, and we will begin with Deuteronomy 18, beginning with verse 15, as really an overall description of Moses before looking at one particular event in the life of Jesus from Matthew 4 that is anticipated with events tied to Adam, Israel, and of course, Moses too. So again, we're in Deuteronomy 18. We're going to pick it up with verse 15. This is Moses speaking. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know that the word the Lord has not, excuse me, how, we, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go again in prayer to him. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the word made flesh, Jesus, your son, who is the Christ. And we pray that through him we would see and learn and grow more deeply in our life with you. We pray that your spirit would be in, with, and amongst us in this time, uniting us to you and to each other. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, through the power of that same spirit. Amen. Well, we began with that passage from Deuteronomy 18 because Moses, he's a huge figure in the Bible, and he sets the model for the prophets, certainly, that, that come after him, including Jesus himself. And arguably, he's also the model for the high priests that would come after him, as well as kings too. Uh, Deuteronomy 18 provides the standard for determining a true prophet from a false prophet. If their word is proven true in a short amount of time, well, then you know. As an aside, that assumes that the vast majority of prophecy that you find in the Bible wasn't about the future. Most of it is not. And those words that were or are about the future were fulfilled, fulfilled often very soon after. So you need only think of, like, say, Jonah and his preaching at Nineveh, that in 40 days' time, God would bring his, his judgment. Now, giving a standard for what counts as a true prophet also implies that wherever the true word of God is preached, false words will be warring against it, as the ministry of Jeremiah, Jeremiah poignantly shows. But even as... 
Prophets like, say, Elijah or Elisha are huge figures in the Old Testament. No one apart from David and Jesus has as much ink devoted to the totality of his life and the events surrounding his life as, as Moses does. So while Deuteronomy 18 teaches that the people of God were to look forward to a coming prophet like Moses, of whom God would put his word in the prophet's mouth, who would be raised up from among his brothers, and who in turn, like God says at Jesus' transfiguration, the people should listen to him. It is not only the pattern of Moses' work of speaking God's word that matters, though obviously that is of utmost importance. As Matthew, along with other New Testament writers, makes clear, the events of Moses' life also serve as a crucial template for identifying the prophet to come. And as you can probably guess, this, this is absolutely true of Jesus, but you can also see this at work with men like Joshua, or Daniel, or David, or even Solomon at times. So since Moses' life covers, well, roughly four books of the Bible, don't worry, I'm not going to go point by point through those four books, allow me just a few moments to just give you a taste of what I mean of how Moses' life works. Start at his birth. At his birth, like at Jesus' birth, a wicked serpent-like king, Pharaoh is described in very similar terms to the serpent of Genesis 3. That king conspired to kill the sons of the Hebrews, act effectively a genocide, like at Jesus' birth, but through the deception of the midwives, which is a reversal on how the serpent deceived Eve, Eve now deceives the serpent, much like how the Magi deceived Herod. And Moses, like Noah then, was saved through water. A moment that anticipates Israel's own salvation through water at the Red Sea and again with the crossing of the Jordan into the promised land. And of course, Paul sees Israel's crossing of the Red Sea as a baptism into Moses, which anticipates not only Christ's baptism in the Jordan, but our own baptism into Christ. Now Moses, though clearly a Hebrew, was raised as a prince of Egypt, much like Joseph found life in Pharaoh's house, or how Daniel was elevated in Babylon. Like with both Joseph and Jesus, ultimately leading to Jesus' death, well, Moses was rejected by his brothers as a ruler and judge over them. And this initially happens in Exodus 2, when Moses kills an Egyptian in defense of his brothers, but it will occur over and over again throughout his life. For 40 years, Moses was trained and tested as a shepherd in preparation for leadership of God's people, even as Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, David were all shepherds. And of course, though he was carpenter, Jesus is the great shepherd. Moses encounters God at the burning bush and finds he is on holy ground, and people are only ever on holy ground when people have come into God's throne room. Heaven has come to earth, as it were. And so it is in Exodus 3, complete with the tree of life, the fiery altar, and what I think is the Son of God in the midst of the fire speaking to Moses. It is replay, replayed later in Isaiah 6 when Isaiah comes into the throne room of God. And in this seminal moment, God speaks with Moses mouth to mouth. That is, Moses had the privilege of dialoguing with God, and God's holy presence 
even interceding for God's people. And at times, like Abraham, he argues with God. It's why when we would leave, when he would leave the glory cloud of God's presence, Moses would radiate God's glory, much like Jesus radiated his own glory at his transfiguration and later after his resurrection. Moses was then set apart by God to rescue God's people from Egypt. And as you go through the text, it is fascinating how at some points God says, I will save through my arm. And then at other times he says, through your arm, Moses, I will save. And that's meant to show us that God intentionally worked through Moses to bring about the redemption of his people, just as God worked through his son to bring about the redemption of the world. Through Moses, God makes war on the serpent and his proxy, Pharaoh, through the plagues, which were all humiliations of Egypt's gods in one way or another. In turn, God, through Moses, leads his people through the Red Sea and brings them to a symbolic Eden. That's Sinai. In fact, we sang about that already tonight or this morning. And he makes a covenant with them there. That is, he enters into marriage with Israel. He would be their God and they would be his people. And at that wedding... Like with the Sermon on the Mount, Moses brings the law from God's throne room on Sinai to the people below, even as they were in the midst of rebelling against their God. Well, that takes us to Exodus 34, and there is so much more uh, we could talk about, and I left out plenty of stuff on the way to Exodus 34, and every one of these events I mentioned, in one way or another, anticipates what we see Jesus say and do in the Gospels. In fact, Any one of those could have been a sermon within itself. But to show you how the gospel writers understand Jesus in light of Moses, maybe especially Matthew of all four of the gospel writers, instead of just spending time in the Old Testament, I want to flip it. And I want to focus on one familiar event. Hopefully all of you are familiar with this event in Matthew chapter 4. So in Matthew 4... We find Matthew's account of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. And three out of the four Gospels include this event, so it's, it's clearly uh, very important to the apostles. Matthew tells us that the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness, the realm often associated with demons, and we saw that same idea at work, if you remember, uh, in Luke chapter 8 a few months ago in the Gentile area of the Gerasenes uh, with the legion of, of demons that Jesus Uh, did battle with. So Jesus is led by the Spirit in order to be tested by the Satan, the accuser of God's people. And just as an aside, his name is not Satan. That's his title. So just about everywhere in the Bible, it's not Satan. It's the Satan, the accuser, in the same way that Christ is not Jesus' name. That's his title. He is the Christ. So the Satan here is the same figure from the book of Job, for example, and what stands behind the serpent of Genesis 3. So as we find Jesus in Matthew 4, he's in what has to be, if not a near death-like state, it's an incredibly weakened and vulnerable state. He's been fasting from food for 40 days. In the first temptation, Satan tempts him with food. He says, turn these stones to bread. In fact, he says, if you are the Son of God, turn these stones to bread. And Jesus refuses, and he quotes Deuteronomy 8 to him. He says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In the second temptation, in a vision, Satan takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple, and he says, If you are the Son of God, 
throw yourself down. God will not allow you to be harmed. And again, Jesus responds with Deuteronomy 8. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In the third temptation, again in another vision, Satan shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and tells him that if Jesus would only worship Satan, Satan would give the kingdoms of the world to him. And this is not an idle claim. Since Babylon, Satan and his followers had been given dominion over the Gentile world as judgment on the Gentile world, with only Israel squarely in God's care. Now, of course, through Abraham, God announced that he was going to take back the whole world from all of them. And, of course, in Jesus, with his coming kingdom, he does. Again, Jesus answers by way of Deuteronomy 6, and he says, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you worship. Now, Luke's account tells us that the Satan then left and waited for a more opportune time to test Jesus again, even as Mark tells us that Jesus was in the midst of wild animals and angels ministered to him. And that's it. That's the story. And without a word of explanation about what the event means, Matthew goes directly from that story to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And the reason Matthew doesn't explain the event is because he expects us to recognize the pattern of the temptation and what part of Scripture Jesus was quoting. So he expects us to know our Old Testament very well. Even so, to walk you through it, just start with this question. Why did the Spirit lead Jesus to be tempted? Well, testing is not a bad thing. We often think it is, but it's not. Testing is not a bad thing. Testing is something God regularly does to his people. God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, who is holy and faithful and good and just, he tests us in order to reveal our hearts and what we love most. Do we love him, the one we were made for, the one whose image we bear, or do we love some other thing? Like when God calls out to Adam and Eve in the garden, where are you? It's not as, as if God does not know, right, the depths of our heart, let alone where Adam and Eve were, these tests are for our benefit. They're for our benefit. So often our hearts are hidden, not just from other people because we try and keep them hidden, but they're actually hidden from ourselves too. That We don't realize the depths of our hearts, and sometimes we don't even realize what we really desire and want. And this notion of testing is what is in view with Satan's accusations against Job, for example. Satan claims that Job doesn't really love God. He only superficially loves God because of the benefits he received from God. So remove the benefits, you know, things like family, wealth, good health, and Job would curse God's name, or so the Satan alleges. So God allows Satan to test Job just as the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. To put it another way, outside of reality TV and weird things you find on social media, a woman most likely will not be tempted to infidelity on her wedding day. Most likely not. Maybe a bridezilla, but for normal people, most likely not. No, it will be sometime after, most likely when her husband is absent and things are difficult. And no doubt the testing will come when perhaps there's been a fight or maybe many fights, or perhaps her husband has been emotionally distant for a long time as, he, as she feels it, or he has been obsessed with work or his hobbies or whatever, and in turn, perhaps another man who seems more sympathetic or kind or who listens to her. 
he enters the scene. In Genesis 3, Adam was tested in the heart of the garden sanctuary when God was apparently nowhere to be found. The serpent tested Adam to see if he would be faithful to God's word and in turn guard and keep the garden sanctuary, in particular his wife Eve. It's only afterward that Adam and Eve hear God's footsteps, implying that though God seemed absent, he was not far from them at all. And these testing events hit squarely at the heart of worship, and worship is always a matter. It is always a matter of what we want or love most. And in turn, they almost always call into question whether God, these testing events, whether God is actually good or not. As the fictional wife in my example may wonder, does my husband really love me? Or will I find what I think I need in this other man who seems so much better in this moment? These testing events always end with the rendering of judgment, either a declaration of righteousness or, or sinfulness, faithfulness or unfaithfulness. So when Adam is judged at the end of his testing, he is found to have broken faith with God. Where are you? That's analysis. That is God judging. Job actually, as opposed to Adam, asked for his day in court, and God shows up, giving it to him, effectively silencing Job. With Joseph's testing in Egypt at the hands of his brothers, we see him elevated to the right hand of Pharaoh. And with Abraham in the testing with Isaac, we see Abraham become the model of faith. And so Jesus in Matthew 4 is tested, only instead of being tested in the midst of the garden sanctuary like Adam, Jesus, who had left the throne room of God, is tempted on the enemy's home territory. So where Adam failed to keep faith with God in God's house, and in turn failed to guard and keep the sanctuary and have dominion over the serpent, instead ceding dominion over to the serpent, Jesus kept faith with God and mastered the serpent in the serpent's territory by keeping God's word. As an aside, this is why a big part of Jesus' ministry involves casting out demons. So like Moses, Jesus both spoke mouth to mouth with God, and he also had God's word in his mouth. Clearly, he, every one of these is a quotation of Scripture, as evidenced by how uh, he quoted all of this to Satan. He knows God's word, but more so, as John makes clear, well, Jesus is the word of God himself. Come in the flesh. It's also why he gives his disciples, as an aside, the authority of his word. It's his word, right? To preach and declare the coming kingdom of God, that he is taking back the world, even as he gives them the authority to cast out demons. In fact, in Luke 10, we haven't gotten there yet in our Luke series, but we will soon, when the 70 return home and report to Jesus that even the demons were subject to them in Jesus' name, in response, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions. It's Genesis 3 language. To tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Because he was hurt. Because his heel was bruised. Ours will not be. So whereas Adam failed to conquer the serpent and was in fact conquered by him, Jesus conquered the serpent and his victory restores humanity's right to rule, even over the demons. But Jesus' testing is also 
a replay of Israel's testing in the wilderness after the Exodus. Remember, God called Israel his firstborn son. That's how he described Israel to Pharaoh. And when God led Israel out of Egypt, which was for not only that time, but for really well over a thousand years, the breadbasket of the world, when he led them out of the breadbasket of the world into the wilderness, well, there was no food or drink to be had. And God was testing Israel's heart. It's why Jesus answers each of the three temptations by way of the book of Deuteronomy. Every one of them comes from Deuteronomy, really the same section. The first sin Israel commits is that they grumble against God because they are hungry. Remember, Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law, and it was given to the children that had grown up over the 40 years in the wilderness and was on the verge of taking the promised land. It's the second giving to this new generation that's going to take the promised land. And here's what Moses says in Deuteronomy 8. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. So he's led them into this, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commands or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart, right? This is what this testing does. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, in other words, bread, wine, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, like in the wilderness, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Not only does Jesus situate his own temptation in light of that, in light of the 40-year testing of Israel in the wilderness, Moses' words in, in Deuteronomy 8 anticipate not only the, the obvious bounty of the promised land, you will eat bread without scarcity, but what Jesus signifies in the feeding of the 5,000 that he wasn't merely taking back the promised land, but the whole earth. And through his testing, his people would enjoy life forever with God that far exceeded the promised land. Well, Israel's second sin was to test God at Massa and Meribah when there was no water. And it's that famous scene, I'm sure you know it. It's that famous scene where God tells Moses that he would go before Moses to a rock. And Moses was to strike the rock and water would come from it. That's Exodus 17, 6. And what you should picture is Moses striking God. Striking God and hitting the rock because there is God on that rock and Moses takes the rod and hits the rock. And from that rock comes water, living water. 
And for good reason, Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 says that rock was an image of Christ. So through his death, we have received living water. And the people tested God by calling to question whether he was good or not and held back their trust until he had met their demands for water, something that the Pharisees and scribes would do with Jesus as well, only in terms of give us another miracle, then maybe we might believe you. And for good reason then, when tested to see if God would actually protect him from falling from the pinnacle of the temple, Jesus answers with Deuteronomy 6.16, you shall not put your God to the test. Israel's third sin comes with a golden calf. As Peter Lightheart comments, while Israel waited at the foot of Sinai for Moses to reappear from the glory cloud, they constructed a golden calf at the foot of the mountain and bowed down to worship it. To lust for bread and testing the Lord, they added the sin of idolatry, throwing themselves before the golden calf, worshiping Satan. So for good reason then, when Jesus was faced with the test to worship Satan, idolatry, he answered again with Deuteronomy. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, and you shall worship him alone. Again, as, as Lightheart comments, Israel lusted after bread and grumbled against the Lord. Israel tested Yahweh at Massa and Meribah. Israel turned to worship Satan. Jesus is faced precisely with these temptations in this order. It's the same order. It's the same event in some, in some sense. And Jesus succeeds in overcoming them. He trusts God for his bread. He refuses to test God. He does not succumb to idolatry. He is the true Israel, reversing the sins of the first Israel. So, Jesus is a faithful Adam who conquered the serpent. He is a faithful Israel who kept faith in the wilderness. But you might be saying, I thought this sermon was about Moses and how he anticipates Jesus. Well, here we go. In Deuteronomy chapter 9... Again, we're in the same section of Deuteronomy. Moses recounts two different 40-day fasts he endured. And it's not just bread. It's water, too. And if that sounds miraculous, I think it's because it is. The first 40-day period was when he was on top of Sinai in the glory cloud. At the end of that 40-day fast, he received the two tablets of the covenant written by God's own hand, like Adam he personally received God's words in the presence of God. And he came down out of God's throne room only to find the people of God engaged in adultery via the golden calf. And in response, he burned the golden calf with fire, he grounded it down to powder, he cast it upon the water, and he made the people drink it, anticipating the jealousy test of Numbers 5. And in turn, through the Levites, a tribe who would be set apart in the future, to guard and keep the tabernacle and temple, he tells them to clap on a sword. Here we go, fellas. And they went and they cleansed the camp of wickedness. This is exactly what Adam should have done with the serpent, but he did not do. After that's over, then immediately Moses goes right back up the mountain in an attempt to atone for the people's sin. In fact, he says, maybe I might be able to offer my life and atone for this people's sin. And again, he spends 40 days fasting and interceding for God's people. And I think both 40-day periods are, in some sense, a test for Moses too. As God's appointed leader, will he rely on God alone, or will he take matters into his own hands? Later in Moses' life, he takes matters into his own hands, and God bars him from the promised land because of this. 
But in this case, he keeps God's word. So Moses set apart by God to lead his people after 40 days. Just see the imagery here. After 40 days, receive God's word in the place of the burning bush. He comes down from God's throne room, chased out the serpent who would deceive God's bride, leading her to unfaithfulness, and in turn offered his life as an atonement for the people's sin, interceding for 40 days for God to relent. And God does. God gives the two tablets again, and the people are spared. But what about fasting? Why fasting? Nowhere did God command Moses or Jesus to fast. This is something they chose to do. And again, I think Lightheart is very helpful for understanding this. He writes, By fasting, Moses did the opposite of what Israel had been doing. Israel had complained they had no bread. Moses refused bread. Israel murmured and grumbled and put God to the test at the waters of Massa and Meribah. Moses drank nothing for 40 days. Israel set up an idol to lead them into the land. Moses destroyed the idol and threw himself before the Lord. And Jesus, as the greater Moses, following in the pattern established by Moses, he does all of this too, only to a far greater degree. Now, prior to his testing, Jesus was baptized in the Jordan, and God immediately declared, this is my beloved son. In turn, Satan, like he did with Israel, put that declaration to the test. And at the end of the 40 days, Jesus was judged righteous and faithful and began to take back the world as a greater Joshua. But the opportune time Satan was looking for would come at the end of Jesus' ministry. When, like Moses, Jesus had been rejected by his brothers as the judge and ruler set over them by God. Like Moses, Jesus instead interceded for his unfaithful brothers. Father, forgive them and actually, actually atoned for them. Now, in our, our book from the Evening Men's Study, which I've already mentioned uh, once in this service, Jeffrey Myers, he wrote these words. He said, death is a message to us. Think about that. Death is a message to us, a message, message that we are finite and limited, that we are not God, but are rather answerable to him. God is testing man to see if he will get the point. So death is God's judgment on our failed attempts to be like the serpent, treating ourselves as if we are gods. And it is, a stark, it is as stark a reminder as you will find of humanity's unfaithfulness and rejection of the, of the God who made us. We used to use that phrase a lot here, God is God, we are not God. It's that third one that gets us. We're not happy about that. We're not happy about it. We want to be God. And every one of us will be tested in death. And what we think we have hidden in our hearts, it's going to be revealed. It will be. And we, of course, face tests regularly. And whether we realize it or not, our speech, our speech reveals our hearts every time we speak. We don't believe that, but it's true. Every time we speak, we're revealing our hearts. And this life, even for those who belong to Jesus, it is a life of testing. It is often hard. It is often full of grief. And even as God tests and reveals our hearts and will lead us into places we'd rather not go, He is so kind and He is so good that He has not left us alone in our sin and misery. Though sometimes, if we leave it to our feelings, we may think that. 
No, he has given us a better Moses, his son, who willingly left the heavenly throne room, the word of God who speaks to us directly, the faithful Adam who has guarded and kept his unfaithful bride. He has defeated and cast out the serpent. He has caused it to where we will not be hurt by him. He was a faithful Israel in his testing. He laid down his life in intercession for his bride so that alienation and death might not be the final word on us. His victory is so complete, so total, that Paul not only talks of death, the ultimate testing, as no worse than falling asleep. But he quotes Hosea, the prophet, with full confidence. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our faithful Adam. He is the faithful Israel. He is the greater Moses. Let us turn to him in prayer now. Jesus, you are the Christ, and there is no one like you. You are the one who laid down your life for us. You have given us all good things. And even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we have nothing to fear, though it is terrifying, because you are with us. Your rod and your staff, you great shepherd, you comfort us with them. You prepare a place for us. You prepare a table, even in the presence of our enemies. Our cup overflows, Lord, because you drank the cup. There is no God like you, a God so tender-hearted and kind who continually pursues his unfaithful bride. We thank you for this. We praise you for this. We pray all of this through the spirit that you have given to us. Amen.